Welcome back to Parashat Achrimot. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman. We are in the middle of a discussion about the sacrifices. We are taking our um, lesson from Leviticus chapter 16, where in Parashat Achrimot, the details concerning the Yom Kippur sacrifice and the Yom Kippur um, ritual services are detailed. We've got Aharon the high priest going in to make atonement for himself, for the sins of the people, and to also cleanse the sanctuary with the animals that he is bringing. Now, our first two sections dealt with the importance of the word kapur, uh, kafar actually being the root word, how the root word kafar symbolizes a, a covering, but in a, in a different cognate, in a different stem, uh, a PL versus the call stem, we find that the word kafar giving rise to the word kipir um, uh, doesn't necessarily mean to cover, but rather means to wipe clean or to, to wipe off, to smear on, in reference to the blood being applied to the actual articles of the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the um, the Ark of the Covenant, the Kaparut, etc. So that was lesson A, or part A. In part B, we did um, an apologetic section where we had a missionary and an anti-missionary go at each other concerning um, intentional and unintentional sins, and then we had a messianic step in and provide also yet a third opinion as to how our intentional and and unintentional sins atoned for, and does a penitent heart uh, play an important part in the whole um, sequence of things? The whole, the whole um, um, uh, atonement device, bringing the animals and/or recognizing Yeshua. We also took a lengthy quote from the Talmud and the Mishnahs and the Gemaras for that exercise. But now let's turn to Apologetics Part Two. I want to start looking at Yeshua's atonement and how it bears relevance for both Jews and Gentiles today. Because again, the missionary answer is that all we need is Jesus, and therefore the animals would never ever be brought back into the picture. The anti-missionary answer, um, which is basically a a standard Judaic answer, um, is that no, we don't need Jesus today for repentance. We need, in fact, I'm sorry, for atonement. We need, in fact, prayer, repentance, and um, <clears throat> we need prayer, repentance, and we need um, charity. Um, and we're going to talk about those three later on uh, down into my commentary. So we have two different opinions between the missionary and the anti-missionary. The, the anti-missionary, the thing that the missionaries and the anti-missionaries have in common seems to be a disdain for the animals themselves. The missionaries seem to opt for Jesus versus the animals, and the anti-missionaries seem to opt for those three, prayer, repentance, and charity, uh, in um, in uh, uh in comparison to the animals. And yet, a third opinion, which is my opinion, the Messianic answer, which is not completely um, against the Messianic answer, and I'm sorry, against the missionary answer, and it's not completely against the anti-missionary answer either. It's kind of a, a middle position between the two. I suggest that um, for this day and age, we don't have the animals, but that's not necessarily a good thing. It's actually a bad thing. It's a punishment. If we had a temple, then I believe we would need the animals again. And that's where I and the missionaries would disagree. I don't believe that prayer replaces the animals like the anti-missionaries are saying. I believe that prayer is a necessary ingredient along with both the animals, if we had a tabernacle slash temple, along with um, our faith in Yeshua. Okay. I hope that I'm not confusing anyone regarding these three positions, the missionary position, the anti-missionary position, and my own messianic position. Keep reading. I hope I, I, I do not confuse you. 
Apologetics Part 2, Yeshua's Bloody Atonement Sacrifices, where we're going to start on the top, I'm sorry, near the bottom of page 11, if you're following along the written notes. Obviously, by now, with the arrival of Yom Kippur, comes this central aspect of our relationship with our Holy God. And what is that central aspect? Atonement. Why is atonement so important to Hashem? You know, why can't he just wish the sins to go away? I mean, he, after all, he is God, right? Why does he need to set up some sort of system that we can um, approach him with? Why? I mean, if he's not God, and I'm not trying to mock and ask a mocking question, what I'm saying is some people have asked this question, people who don't understand God's ways and God's words, will maybe ask the question, why, you know, why is atonement so important? Why the animals? Why Yeshua? Why can't God just repair the breach some other way? Well, apparently ever since the incident in the Garden of Eden, mankind has carried within himself the sinful propensity of that first act of disobedience and consequently the sinful results as well. In other words, our sin nature is in direct conflict with the holy nature of Hashem. And as a result, we humans cannot fathom approaching him without first making some sort of restitution which would satisfy Hashem's righteous requirement. Again, sin cannot exist in God's sight and therefore an atonement device is needed. His nature demands that there be an atonement for sin for indeed sin cannot exist in his sight. So, in an attempt to explain this atonement matter further, we Bible students need to understand the plans and the purposes of Hashem as expressed in the whole of the Torah. When I say that, I mean both covenants, if I could use terms that, Christian, that Christianity is familiar with, both Old and New Testament, even though I don't espouse to those terms. From our vantage point, and using 20th century hindsight, actually 21st century hindsight, it makes perfect sense to send the Messiah to atone for our uh, sinful nature, right? Let me just change it 21st century hindsight. There we go. It seems to make perfect sense to, the, to send the Messiah, right? To atone for our nature. Um, I mean, why even send the animals in the first place? After all, if God left things in the hands of mankind, if you think about it now, this is just a hypothetical question, a hypothetical situation. Let's say that God said to man, okay, fine, you want to atone for your sins? Give it your best shot. What would happen then? I think you know what the answer would be. Each individual man would have to atone for his own personal sins, and each man, consequently, would have to die for such a payment. See how that works? Because I sin, I, R-A-L, I sin. So I shouldn't really expect substitutionary atonement if I think that I should be able to handle it, right? Let's say I show up to God's uh, tabernacle and say, okay, God, I'm going to atone for my sins. God says, fine, atone for it. What's your sacrifice? If I say, well, since I sinned, I'm the one who has to die, well, guess what happens? That doesn't work, because I'm not a perfect sacrifice, number one. And number two, even if I were able to sacrifice myself and offer myself up to God, it'd be the last time that I was able to, to, to uh, present such an offering, because then I'd be dead. So it doesn't make any sense. We should understand that Yeshua is the only man who could have been offered by God to provide atonement for us, because only Yeshua was a sinless offering. What does the Torah say in Romans chapter 5, verse 12? Quote, Here's how it works. It was through one individual that sin entered into the world. 
Of course, that's Adam. And through sin, death. And in this way, death passed through to the whole human race, inasmuch as everyone sinned, end quote. Okay? So we see that the Torah teaches that mankind cannot bring an atonement of himself or cannot bring an offering, a korban to God of himself because it's not a perfect sacrifice. We cannot rely on ourselves as the sacrifice. We must rely on God's system of substitutionary atonement. With the entrance of sin came the punishment for sin. And what was that? Death. So we see that Hashem is perfectly righteous when he says that the wages for our sin is death. Why? Because every man does deserve to die. Because every man sins. But here, of course, is where the mercy of Hashem comes in. God our Father has lovingly provided a means by which mankind can redeem himself. Okay? Now, this speaks of the purposes of sending the Torah. Far from sending the Torah to be a millstone around our neck, the Torah actually provides the answer to the human dilemma. The Torah is a good thing. Because contained within the pages of the Torah are the details concerning our atonement. And in the period of the Tanakh, the sacrificial system was that means. Okay, Even though it only served to cleanse the flesh, it was authentically God's solution. Do you understand what I'm going with this? All right. We oftentimes in the 21st century, especially within Christian circles, we look down our nose at the Torah and at the Tanakh and we say, gosh, what a flawed system. Boy, I'm so glad that I have Jesus. And you know what? That's a wrong position. That's a wrong mindset. The animals were authentically God's solution. No Jew living in that time period was able to circumvent this system and expect to remain officially within the community. It's not going to happen. You could not approach the tabernacle or the temple without bringing some sort of animal sacrifice. Uh, that is to say, without bringing some sort of korban. Um, I'm not saying that all the sacrifices were animals. Obviously, the the um, the ashla, uh, I'm sorry, the mincha was a grain offering. But to answer the question posed above, if we take Hashem seriously, then we will accept His provision, God's provision, no matter what means, no matter how inadequate that provision may seem to us. If God is the authority, then we line up with his rulings, with his injunctions, with his commandments. And this is our first lesson in Torah logic, okay? God makes the rules. We don't make the rules ourselves, okay? Now, having established that hermeneutic principle that God is the one in control, this brings us to the current situation facing every man, woman, and child, Jew or Gentile, living today. And here's the question. Since the sacrificial system used in the Tanakh did not bring the participant to the goal of attaining positional righteousness, what was his means of attaining positional righteousness then? And what is his means of gaining such atonement today? Did you understand my question? In other words, how were the Old Testament saints saved back then and both today, basically, is the, answer, uh, the question I'm asking. Now, <clears throat> again, as we've already observed from the anti-missionaries position above, the modern rabbis today would have us believe that, that the three ways by which to appease Hashem are repentance, 
prayer and righteous acts. And I've effectively put them in my commentary as three Hebrew words that begin with the letter T, or TZ, and they are teshuva, or tshuva, which is repentance, teshuva, you've heard it uh, pronounced that way, teshuva, which is repentance, tefillah, which is prayer, and tzedakah, which is righteous acts. Okay, repentance, prayer, and and charity, or repentance, prayer, and righteous deeds, which is what charity is, okay? These three T's are the the, uh, the ways that modern Judaism teaches that we gain Hashem's approval. Okay? Again, keep in mind that this is the anti-missionary position which rejects the notion that Jesus is the atonement for sin both then and for today. Okay? To be sure, all of these principles that I just mentioned, repentance, prayer, and righteous acts, they are found in the teachings of the Torah. And, and I'm not trying to um, um, disqualify them, each and every one of them has valid merit. I'm not trying to say that these principles are bad. They are actually good principles. Okay? For, I mean, example, for, let's just single out each one of them. God is highly interested in our repentance, is he not? He wants us to turn from sin. So, teshuvah is important. Number two, he is very supportive of a prayer time. Right? Tefillah, prayer. We are commanded to pray. God is interested in our prayer. Oh, yes. And number three, he is enthusiastic of our righteous acts done in his name. God, in fact, saves us so that we can do righteous acts. So, repentance, prayer, and righteous acts, teshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah, are all valid biblical concepts. But what does the Torah portion say that we're reading today? Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Here we are, our chair passage. Quote, For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you, given it the blood, to you on the altar to make atonement for yourselves. For it is the blood that makes atonement because of the life. It does not say it is the prayer that makes atonement. It does not say it is the repentance that makes atonement. It does not say it is the righteous acts that make atonement. What does it say? It says it is the blood that makes atonement because of the life in the blood. End quote. Again, this, this, this is beginning to answer the question. Again, the anti-missionaries above said that, well, you know, Ariel, this passage isn't really a talking about atonement. It's talking about um, kosher foods. You know, don't eat blood because blood makes atonement. That is true. That's a side issue. It, the passage really is dealing with, aton- with um, kosher, that which we can and cannot ingest. How, and blood is forbidden. To, to ingest. We shall not ingest bud, blood. This, by the way, is true for both the native-born, the Ezrach, as well as the stranger, the Ger. All right? In other words, it's true for both Jew and Gentile. However, the fact that God does mention that the blood makes atonement, it is an important factor of the Pasuk, the verse, and we should not ignore it. So with that, let's turn to a section entitled, There's Power in the Blood. You recall the old familiar Baptist tune? There's power in the blood, power in the blood, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember all the words, but I just remember that tune. Let's move on into chapter 17, where we're going to deal with this chair passage. Leviticus 17.11 is a chair passage. Remember now, a chair passage is the proverbial fork in the road where one group goes one way and one group goes the other way. Now, um, this single verse of the Torah has caused no small disagreement between Christian missionaries 
and anti-missionaries. Of course, the anti-missionaries are usually the Jewish people in this sense. I'm not, again, let me say this up front. I'm not trying to say that the Christians are right and the Jews are wrong. I'm not trying to say that the Jews are right and that the Christians are wrong. <clears throat> what I'm trying to do is get us to understand the um, sharp differences between the two opinions and help us to come to a proper understanding of what the Torah is teaching us. And if the Christians have a little bit of it right and a little bit of it wrong, then let's take the good and leave the bad. Conversely, if the Jewish position, the anti-missionaries have a little bit of it right and a little bit of it wrong, let's chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Um, no one is completely in error and no one is completely in truth. We need to understand that everyone has a little bit of the truth and a little bit of error. So it's our job as students to um, sharpen ourselves as we um, uh, uh, embrace the truth and avoid the error, no matter who whose position it is. All right. The missionaries, the Christians, use this verse, verse uh, chapter 17, verse 11, as a launching point by which to propagate the necessity of the atonement of Yeshua, the Messiah, for the permanent forgiveness of sins. Okay, The rabbis teach that according to further insight, usually provided for them by the Talmud, that this verse is not exclusively addressing the issue of sin atonement, um, which is something I just mentioned earlier. Right? Um, again, since we're studying the arguments and responses of both camps, we should not be ashamed to provide an authoritative answer. Okay? We should not throw our hands up in the air and say, well, you know, maybe the Christians are right. Well, maybe the Jews are right. Well, you know, who am I to say which position is wrong? Guess what? If you're a student of the Bible, if you've got the Spirit living inside of you and you can study the Word of God, then don't be ashamed if the Spirit of God is giving you the right answer. First of all, the rabbis have a somewhat valid point to make. All right, before we completely discount them. Because I know what some of you are thinking. You think, well, gosh, Ariel, obviously the Christian position is right because they've got the Christ. We've got the Messiah. We've got the fullness of the Torah. We've got the Spirit. Aren't you, in fact, Ariel, hinting at the fact that the missionary position is correct? Well, not entirely. Again, first of all, the rabbis have a somewhat valid point to make. And that is this. The Torah does address the issue of atonement in other sections. Besides this Leviticus passage. Likewise, Hashem did use the blood of animals and other types of sacrificial requirements where sin is not the primary issues. Again, go to Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 and you'll see the five types of korbanot listed there. Um, the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Okay, And of those five types, um, expiatory... Uh, expiatory um, um, sacrifices is not the key focus in every one of them. To be sure, the first three are, not, are non-expiatory. So the rabbis have some valid points to make there. Okay, Jesus did not just do away with all the sacrifices, is what I'm trying to say. Jesus' atonement did not just point... Uh, Jesus' sacrificial atonement is not typified by every sacrifice, is what I'm trying to say. The Ola, the Mincha, and the Shlamim are non-expiatory. Therefore, we could effectively bring those back if we had a temple... And they would be, they would have no direct bearing on Jesus' sacrifice for us, in, in a sense. Um, Hashem did use the blood of animals and other types of sacrificial requirements where sin is not the primary issue. But what the rabbis seem to misunderstand, in my opinion, is that the above-quoted verse was not intended to confuse the average reader. You know, when you read the verse, um, the rabbis kind of start twisting the passage and saying, well, you know, does it say this, does it say that? 
citing the rules of standard grammatical historical exegesis when the plain sense of scripture makes common sense seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of the, relative, of the related passages and axiomatic fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. All right. In other words, did the average unlearned reader living in the time period of the Tanakh understand what Hashem was asking of him? a good question, right? Of course he did. If he did not, I imagine we would have read about the difference in interpretation somewhere else in the Torah, but we don't have anything there. But our verse here in Leviticus contains little or no ambiguity. The immediate recipients of the context of chapter 17, if we just want to do our structural analysis, are as given. We have um, the commandments given to Moshe in verse 1, and then to Aharon and his sons in verse 1, to Am Yisrael in verse 1, and finally someone in the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you in verses 8 and 10. So the chapter even leaves off addressing anyone in verse 15. Okay, that's chapter 17 that I'm looking at, by the way. Now, were all of these individuals learned people? Were they all rabbis? Were they all scholars? Did they study at the most brilliant theological schools of their day? Was Hashem secretly cloaking this important information and mystery only to be understood by the future rabbis and Kabbalists, I might add, and Torah teachers of the people of Israel? Nonsense, of course not. All those questions are rhetorical. I am not reluctant to place the blame on either over-examination or blatant stubbornness to the rule Kakodesh. And because of this, we sometimes miss the simple explanation that the Torah is trying to teach us. In other words, to use modern language, we miss the forest for the trees. Another rather obvious cause, I should say, for the disagreement here is the fact that most non-Messianic rabbis, most anti-missionaries, don't consider the apostolic scriptures, the New Covenant scriptures, the New Testament. They don't consider that section to be authoritative, and therefore, they usually ignore its teaching. You know what I have to say to them? Woe unto those unfaithful teachers during the coming day of reckoning, during the day of Yom Haden. God has given us the apostolic scriptures as an authority so that we can understand what the Torah is trying to teach us. In fact, here's a good hermeneutic principle I want to pass along to you students listening to my podcast right now, okay? This doesn't show up in the written commentary. This is just for you guys listening. If you read a passage in the apostolic scriptures and you have a question about it, Turn back to the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and see if that passage is alluded to somewhere in the Tanakh. Because you're going to find further illumination from the Apostolic Scriptures if you will use the Tanakh as the basis of the inspiration of the Apostolic Scriptures. Now watch this. It works in reverse as well. If you're reading through the Torah or the Tanakh, the Apostolic, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Old Testament, and you find a passage that doesn't seem to make sense, Use a very good concordance and see if you can find if this passage is repeated in the Apostolic Scriptures. And if it is, then you're going to find your first and best resource for explaining such a Torah passage. In other words, let me put it this way. If you're reading the New Testament and you're confused, search the Old Testament for illumination. And conversely, if you're reading the Old Testament and you're confused, search the New Testament for illumination. You cannot discount either covenant. We cannot throw out either um, testament. We must allow both of them to work together. Okay, let's go on. Let's go back to our commentary. The Torah, 
as I explain in my commentary, as expounded upon by the Messiah and his first century followers, is authoritative concerning the issue. So it is here that we will settle the issue as to whether or not sin can be atoned for either by repentance, by prayer and charity alone, or whether sin can be atoned for by the blood. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrated his own love for us in that the Messiah died on our behalf while we were still sinners. Therefore, since we have now come to be considered righteous, and I might add positionally righteous, by means of his bloody sacrificial death, how much more will we be delivered through him from the anger of God's judgment? End quote. Did you see it there? Right there. Therefore, since we have now come to be considered positionally righteous by means of his bloody sacrificial death, it is through the blood of Yeshua that we attain positional righteousness. Of course, this is nothing new to the missionaries. But what is new to the missionaries is that the animals themselves did not provide some sort of temporal positional righteousness. That's where I challenge the missionary position. Of course, where I challenge the anti-missionary position is that it is Yeshua's blood that provides such atonement rather than repentance, charity, and prayer. Yeshua has now become the means by which all men must satisfy the righteous atoning requirement of the Holy One. Now, this type of atonement does not merely provide a cleansing of the flesh and a wiping clean of the sanctuary like the animals did. Again, it's, the animal system is not bad. It's a good thing. But Yeshua's atonement is better. Our sins are not merely atoned for spanning the space of another year only to be revisited this same time a year later at Yom Kippur by a priest who will eventually taste death himself. No, this type of atonement, Yeshua's priestly atonement, is a permanent atonement. What does the Torah say at Jeremiah 31, verse 34? Quote, No longer will any of them teach his fellow community member or his brother, No Adonai, for we I'm sorry, for all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. End quote. What is the passage saying? Well, consider that this passage was written closer to the time period when King David lived. All right, There was no Yeshua yet. So righteous King David recognized the mercy of a God who wiped clean the transgressor's sins. In chapter 32 of the book of Psalms, we see that um, God is offering this forgiveness. Let me turn to Psalm 32 because I'm going to read part of this for you. Okay, Psalm 32, um, I want to read verses 1 through 5, by David Amaskil. How blessed are those whose offense is forgiven, those whose sin is covered. How blessed those to whom Adonai imputes no guilt, in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away because of my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. The sap in me dried up as a summer as in a summer drought. In verse 5, When I acknowledged my sin to you, when I stopped concealing my guilt, and said, I will confess my offenses to Adonai, then you, 
you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Now what's interesting is in the uh, first verse where it says how blessed are those whose sins, whose offense is forgiven. The word forgiven there is nasa, which means to carry or to bear, to lift, to take. Whose sins are taken or born, as it were. And then he says in parallel fashion, whose sin is covered. And the Hebrew word for covered there is kasa, whose sins are concealed. It's not the Hebrew word um, kafar. It's not the same word there. All right. So what we see is that um, God wiped clean the transgressor's sin because of the atoning device of the animals. This is where we see a good example of the validity and the necessity of the system used in those days, particularly when sinful individuals approached a holy God. Okay, David could approach the tabernacle, and as he did, um, he knew that the Torah prescribed sacrifice, uh, sacrifices to be brought, and therefore he knew that his sins were forgiven based on his um, obedience to the commandment and also his faith in his progeny, the one who was to come, namely the Messiah himself. But, but the covenant spoken about in Jeremiah uh, is a superior system. Okay, It's superior to merely having your sins covered in the flesh. When Hashem said he says that he's going to remember our sins no more, he's teaching us that only through the once and for all sacrifice <clears throat> will the participant attain lasting goal-reaching permanent forgiveness and you know what that's something to rejoice about why would anyone attempt to pervert the former system into a means of reaching the goal reserved for yeshua's heavenly gift as if it were possible you know why would we try to pervert the animals into something that they can't do why would we wish to pervert repentance prayer and charity into something that they're not designed to do let me just say it this way, okay? When a person rejects Yeshua HaMashiach as the final atonement for their sin, what they're really doing is rejecting the one who sent the Messiah in the first place. In other words, to reject Yeshua is to reject Hashem. And you know what? This is where the corporate blindness of my people lies. So as we draw this um, part uh, C to a close... We start to understand that the second important aspect of the sending of Yeshua at the appointed time has to do with order. Okay, We asked earlier on, why didn't God just send Yeshua way up front and skip all the elaborate middle steps? Well, Hashem has a perfect plan for everything. And according to the purposes of God, Mashiach was sent at the ideal moment in man's history. Not too soon, not too late. Yeshua demonstrated his obedience to the Father by surrendering his life as a sacrifice only when the time set by his Father was perfect. Again, Yeshua didn't come too soon and he didn't come too late. We think maybe he came too late or maybe according to the, um, some people he came too soon. But we must accept this biblical truth and live by it. We must affirm it, even if we can't understand it. In a way, you could hype. Let, let's say, let's say we hypothesize. All right. Let's say that if Messiah Yeshua had provided himself for atonement at a much earlier time, I surmise that possibly because of community dynamics, the way that Israel was um, working um, before the Jewish people uh, found themselves in the predicament that they were in in the first century, then perhaps the majority of Am Israel would have accepted him 
if he came a lot earlier, yet the majority of the surrounding gentile nations may have missed out. That, of course, this is just hypothesis. Um, I, I'm not sure. What do you think? What would happen if Yeshua would have come, say, you know, 3,000 years ago instead of 2,000 years ago? What would happen if he would have come in a time period when Israel was living in the land without Roman oppression, without a lot of um, non-Jews flocking and flooding into the temple? Do you remember how the dynamic of Israel worked in the time period when Israel dwelled in the desert and just entered into the land where they were primarily comprised of native-born peoples and there was not a lot of Gentile interaction? There was some... I agree, there were Gentiles in, within the community of Israel, but we don't seem to have the commonwealth, I'm sorry, the um, the cosmopolitan um, that we had in the first century. And so because of that, perhaps if Yeshua would have come earlier, maybe a lot of Jewish people would have grabbed a hold of him, but there would have been less of a witness for other peoples. I don't know, again, I'm just, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just speculating. It's, it's speculative. It does not, it, it does not mean that it's truth. But it does contain an element of truth, you have to agree, you know, based on the um, players and who's involved. We, we, we just have to speculate. We'll just have to ask Yeshua when he comes back why he chose to come when he came, or why the Father chose to send him when he did. I want you to read Romans chapter 11, specifically uh, verse 25 sometime. Um, and you're going to notice that the Torah seems to be hinting at the aspect that I was just talking about there, about how in Romans chapter 11... Um, let me just turn there real quick since we're just closing this portion of part C. Romans chapter 11. What did I say? Verse 25. It reads, quote, For brothers, I want you to understand this truth which God formerly concealed but has now revealed so that you won't imagine that you know more than you actually do. It is that stoniness to a degree has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters in its fullness. End quote. What I mean is that in Romans, Paul seems to be hinting at Everything lines up with Yeshua coming in accordance with the fullness of the Gentiles being introduced, as well as Israel's blindness allowing for Gentiles to be introduced to the community. So it's like as if Yeshua came too early, perhaps he would, would not have had the full Gentile participation that we now enjoy, or conversely, if he would have come too late, perhaps there would be no hope for the Jewish people. I'm not sure, but that seems to be where the verse is kind of going at, okay? With that, we'll close down... Um, Part C to Parashat Achrimot. Stick around for Part D, the final and concluding portion to my commentary. And we'll begin at the bottom of page 14 with a section titled, Do the Torah. Stay tuned.